You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Hey friends, Dan Duvall here to remind you about a couple things. Number one, this podcast is supported by patrons like you that donate as little as $5 a month. In response to your generosity, we give discounts on our merchandise. We give early access to podcasts and other benefits and goodies that you can check out at dandevall.com. I also want to make sure that everybody listening to this knows about Overcomer Accelerated. This is a new outreach that we're putting together based on what we did in the DID Coach Mentorship Program over in Bride Ministries. This, however, is not geared towards training people to be coaches, but instead geared towards survivors taking a healing journey. It's it, it it's a learning, growing experience with a cohort that will afford you an educational experience in conjunction with active one-on-one coaching. And uh, we believe it's going to be an extraordinary experience. You can find out more at dandeval.com or just go straight to overcomeraccelerated.com and sign up for more information. Uh, We're going to get right to the podcast, friends. We'll see you on the other side. Those were your announcements. Well, folks, here we are for another episode of Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Today, I am joined with Diane Poor, who I am uh, going to introduce to our listening audience. Now, if you've been to coach.com, bridemovement.com. You've seen her picture. In fact, uh, she is, um, she's been with us a long time. Uh, and, and, and when we changed our way at Bride Ministries of um, platforming folks that, that, that would help individuals coming to us, uh, she actually is the only one that transitioned um, and, and, and was added to the folks that I trained personally, but I've known Diane now for years. And, and she has been coaching folks for a long time, even before she connected with us. She has led and facilitated different 12-step groups, has been involved in biblically-based individual counseling for some time. Her and her husband actually owned an IT company for about 14 years. And she's been a member of the American Association of Christian Counselors since 2015. Now she's been hanging out with us for a long time. And I think most of what she does is coaching at this point, but she also loves to teach. So, you know, (laughs) Diane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. It's an honor to be here. You know, and and it is our first time doing this properly, but um, you have, you have definitely spoken to a whole lot of folks. In fact, at Bride Ministries, you even um, lead a support group and, Mm -hmm. You've uh, spoken at our advances with me during our survivor breakout times. And so uh, many of our folks that connect to the ministry know who you are, but some will be meeting you for the first time. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, why you're going to be talking with us today about attachment. Okay. Well, I'm originally from Arizona and I lived there for 47 years and I now I'm in Texas, San Antonio. I've been here for about five years now. And um, I 
have always had a heart for people and for counseling and coaching. And um, I think that started not only through my own journey, but really the pivotal thing was I was a psychology class that I took in high school. <laughs> and I love that so much. And it just made sense to me. And I knew that there was a calling on my life to, um, to take the things that had happened in my life and to be able to extrapolate that. And also I'm a seer. So it was like um, being able to see the spiritual realm and things like that really helped me understand what was going on with other people. So naturally people just kind of gravitated to me as kind of um, a mom type figure. And so anyway, that's how it all began. And so I um, started in 2003 doing ministry with different churches and like you said all of that the 12-step groups and lay counseling and things like that so when I got um, the Lord just said hey we're going to transplant you to Texas I had really had no idea and then you know the rest is history we we connected and I've been here ever since so um, anyway so attachment is near and dear to my heart because it relates to my own personal story so um where do you want me to start with that? So well, let's 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 start. First of all, first of all, we're talking about attachment because people attach differently. Not not everyone attaches the same way. Some people are cool, right? And you know them because if you give them a phone call and you don't talk to them for two months, and and you give them another phone call, you could pick you could pick up right, right where you left right. off. That they're okay. And then there are other people that if you don't talk to them within 24 hours, they're going through a meltdown. And, and, mm -hmm. and sometimes um, it can be difficult if you approach things from a healthy perspective to understand why someone would attach that way. And sometimes when you're approaching things from the other side, it's hard to understand why anyone wouldn't be freaking out if, you know, there was not that connect point. And so we, we see this spectrum, you know, we navigate and, and um, oftentimes we don't know how to even put words or to or explain what's going on or why different people connect differently. But there's definitely been a lot of work done in this area. Mm -hmm. And I think the best place to launch off is how this impacted your own marriage growth okay. early on. Okay. Well, let me start with defining what attachment is so that our listeners can kind of have a, some context here. So attachment, just very simplistically, is the ability to connect emotionally to another person um, and to trust them for security and to hold them for stability, okay? That would be in what we would call a healthy or secure attachment style. And we'll get into the styles here in a little bit, but for me... Um, when I, I got married when I was 22 and um, I had met my husband when we were 16. And so we dated and we knew that we were too young to get married. And so we wanted to wait till, you know, we were, I was getting out of college and that kind of thing. And so we ended up getting married and I started noticing that um, I would have anxiety when he was not home. So he would be out working, he worked IT jobs, which meant he would go to different customer sites and um, I just had a really uh, hard time with coping 
with him not being around. And so back in the days, we didn't have cell phones. So I just would beep him, you know, on the beeper and say, hey, you know, we'd send little cryptic message. We had little codes. And, you know, so he would check in with me through that. And that would give me some kind of anchor of reassurance throughout the day. But then it was like, when you get home, it'd be like, ah, and I'd be all stressed out. So stress was a really, and anxiety was a really big thing for me. Okay. So I had to understand, you know, and I was going through my own, I, my own healing and deliverance thing started a few is when I was 28. So it was six years later after that, but I started going, okay, I must just be really enmeshed with my husband, you know, like I'm young, but what I realized is I started researching, you know, um, anxiety and relationships and it brought me to attachment theory. Okay, so what is attachment theory? So it, it is the way in which people attach in their relationships. Um, so I had to go through a process of learning that. And when I was able to identify what attachment style I was, I was able to then choose to improve it intentionally and risk relationship because that's really the key is that when there's um, a broken or avoidant or some other kind of attachment style, you people tend to just withdraw. They become either rebellious or autonomous or you know whatever in that in that they're you know maybe there's a vow like I don't need anybody. And I was very independent. I've always been a very Type A driven you know person. But for what in this particular area of my life, I just was like, why am I so? clinging and the rejection that would come out of that would be feeling like I'm too much and I didn't want to be that to my husband because I loved him you know so I knew that this was an issue that I needed to deal with so um so reading through attachment I realized that I was having you know um kind of a uh, anxious uh, type of, of attachment. So that's when I had to um, make a choice to get some help for that and read about it and learn what it was so that I could intentionally change it. So um, do you want me to go into the history there? Yeah, let, okay. you know, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about okay. that. And, and here's the thing, folks, you know, um, right, where are attachment styles in the Bible? And I think they're, they're, they're basically listed between the lines, so to speak, as we read through human relationships. But what happens is, as people work on understanding problems, you get tools. And that's what we're talking about today. So why don't you just go ahead and walk us through that history and sure. uh, then into a deeper understanding of what the different styles okay. are. Okay, so... Um, in my research, what I was able to find that there was a British psychologist, his name was John Bowlby, and this was back in um, the 1930s and 40s, and um, where his re research started um, was coming out of was that back when in World War II, where there were air raids over London, and the residents there would ship off their children on trains to go out to the countryside. Um, what would end up happening is that these children would be separated from their parents. So what attachment is, is it, let me go back to that definition. So attachment styles define how we relate to one another in close relationships. Why that's important is because that is developed typically within the first three years of life. 
And you and I know because of SRA and all that kind of stuff, there's a lot that can happen in those first year, first three years of life. And that really determines a lot of how um, a child is going to develop and attach or not attach or have trauma-based, you know, relating and all of that. So anyway, that's that's why this is relevant to what we do at Bride Ministries. So um, so anyway, John Bowlby started looking at 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 these as these children were aging, he was starting to see that there was a lot of delinquency that was coming out of these children. And he was like, why? You know? And so what he found was two things that was that the um, most of them were separated for a period of six months or more from their primary caregiver. Now, remember back in the 40s that, you know, a lot of people had nannies or nursemaids. Um, mom typically was kind of the house mom, you know, house mom kind of thing. And they, they would have nannies and help that would do it. We don't necessarily have that so much here in the, in the United States, but, you know, you do have families that do have nannies and, and things like that. Um, so typically we have our, when we, when we're referring to family of origin, what we're saying is mom or dad, or maybe if you were put in daycare or, you know, some, somebody who was a regular primary caregiver during those first three years of life. So just referencing that. So when he started doing the search, the research on this, he was starting to find out that it happened um, when children were separated from whomever they had bonded to, whether it was their nanny or their mother for six months or longer. And it happened before the first five years of life. So um, he was like, okay. So in 1951, he wrote a book and it was like maternal care and something else. I can't remember it. But anyway, um, it, it basically was called maternal care and mental health. And it, it basically became the way, it changed the way that they were treated uh, ch children in institutions. And so that's a good thing that did come out of that. Okay, so now fast forward to the 70s. He, he pushed this research and introduced it to a woman named Mary Ainsworth. And she was, I believe she was from Canada originally, but don't quote me on that. But anyway, um, she started doing kind of a famous study uh, that was called Strange Situation. And her... Um, what that was, was taking a bunch of people from different walks of life and different, what, different um, ways in which the mom and child related. And she would take the child away from the mom in a, in a research facility. And the mom would be looking through the glass watching, and then they would study how the child related to the, the, the person who was there in the daycare and, and so based on that research, they were, she was the one who was able to determine the attachment styles. So that gives you kind of a brief history. My overlay into that story was because of when I read The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, that, that same exact thing was for you know, the four children who were shipped out of London to go to the professor out in the countryside. And that was that you know, kind of, they have this whole like realmsy experience, right? So it's kind of strange. But when I read that book, it, and then when I read about attachment theory, I was like, oh my gosh, that was what happened to me. And so just a very brief history for me and how this related to me and why I wanted to explore this was because my, my father was a doctor and, you know, um, 
probably the first memory that I had was probably, I was probably five or six to so 75, you know, time frame, And, and I would every summer or sometime throughout the year, my parents would leave for like a month at a time. And, um, they would go to different countries so that my dad could go to medical meetings to get his continuing medical education requirements for his licensure as a doctor. So um, I would be put in these strange homes. I would feel like an imposition. It was, you know, like I wasn't bonding there with people. It was just really, really hard. And um, for me, it wasn't about that it was physically traumatizing. I was never abused in those situations. Um, and just, you know, I grew up in a Christian family, so, you know, it wasn't like, you know, my parents were abusive to me or anything, but, um, but so they found good care for me, but stuff can still happen even with the best of intentions. But what I realized for me was that the longings and missing the trauma that I experienced was not because of, um, having some sort of physical trauma that occurred, but my longings of missing my parents. And I realized that that was a dissociative um, experience that was fracturing my little girl's soul. And that was why for me, that anxious attachment style developed was because I was it, in a while, it wasn't long periods of time. I was so sensitive spiritually already that it, just really threw me for a loop. And so it did hurt me. So anyway, so when I got married, all of this kind of came out when I read that book, I was like, oh my gosh, it totally makes sense. I was able to put the dots together, you know? So that was how I got involved in learning about attachment. Okay, so let's fast forward and say what the attachment styles are. So the first attachment style is, is a secure attachment. And Daniel, you are very much a secure attachment style kind of person. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and, and the parental style that would happen would be a mom um, or, mm. or it can be whether it's a single dad or a single mom or an aunt, grandma, uncle, whatever, doesn't matter, even a nanny. But, but what it means is that that caregiver is um, someone who's very responsive to the stress of the children. So baby cries, they're hungry, their diaper needs to be changed, and they're, they, they cry and have that stress, and then they're comforted. And so biblically speaking, we are hardwired for community, right, and, and relationship. And so while John Bowlby could argue this is a, you know, an instinctual um, it's an instinct that's wired into us for survival. I think it's a God-given hardwiring for learning how ultimately to love. And if we look at like 1 John 4, 19, it says we love him because he first loved us. So right there, we get that, that really that first, it may not be the first example in the Bible, but that's a really great one because it's, it shows and models that reciprocal relationship of how attachment is supposed to work. Make sense? Okay. So, good. so um, the resulting adult characteristics of a secure attachment, which means it's healthy. Yeah, there's going to be bad things you're going to face. You know, we live in a broken world, but how adaptive are you, you know, on that kind of thing? So you're able to create meaningful relationships. You're 
empathetic towards others. There's mutual interdependence, meaning that there's always a give and a take in relationship, meaning you're, you're others focused. You're always trying to, um, let me say it this way, you promote others' strengths and you protect others' weaknesses, right? Make sense? Okay. Wow. So now the second attachment style is called anxious. And I'm going to give you some other names because if you read different books that may be called different things, or there's tons of YouTube videos and books out there. So this has been around for a while. Um, so anxious, it's also called ambivalent, sometimes also called preoccupied. And so what that means is the parental style that that child received was inconsistent, sometimes even intrusive. So it, the child would receive inconsistent responses to their stressors, so their cries, their hunger. Um, so think of an example of, of where that could be is like, mom has a really bad bout of postpartum depression, and she's just like, I can't function. And so baby just lays over there crying. She falls asleep or is drugged, you know, trying to catch up on sleep or whatever. And she's just not hearing that, you know, and so, but then wakes up and realizes, oh my gosh, you know, so there's inconsistent um, relating and comfort that's in nurturing that's given to the stressors of the baby. So that child starts realizing uh, it becomes anxious because they don't know when they're really going to get help. So a child is just trying to meet their needs. Okay. So I think you that's, know, yeah, I just want to chime in here because obviously so many folks that have followed this podcast and listen, have, have either realized or are realizing that they have a degree of dissociation based on past traumas and, mm -hmm. and, and everyone is in a different place in that spectrum some people are on the far end and like oh my gosh i was sold to government projects and my parents were part of a satanic cult others it's not that severe but one of the things that is inevitable is that because of the generational nature of problems, right? It, it, it's very rare that you're going to have someone that is, I mean, almost impossible, that they would have parents that are satanic ritual abused and having dissociative identity disorder that do not come out of that household with issues. But how else are you going to process as a baby the fact that your mom or your dad has different parts? Some of those parts are really angry. And some of those parts are really depressed. And some of those parts really genuinely care. And it's not the child's fault that one or the other may be up at any given point in time, but that would definitely create an environment where your care is going to look different Absolutely. for reasons that are outside of the control of the child. But the interesting thing is that young children don't know how to create externalization either, right? To say, that's your problem, not mine. So for young children, most of the conclusions, once they understand things, sound more like, I am the problem. Why am I not good enough? And wow, okay. But I just wanted to interject a little bit, please yeah, continue. Yeah, sure. So, and you know, you bring up some interesting things that kind of, and I don't want to rabbit trail too much off of here just for time's sake, but um so you can even have 
let's say there's four children in a family, all of them can have different attachment styles because maybe there's a divorce that occurred somewhere in that lifetime, or maybe a parent died. Um, you know, events that can happen that the attachment style of the older child may be very different than the youngest child, for example. And, um, you know, so things like that happen. And also, um, when you, even the younger child in birth order is going to play a role in that as well, because you could have the youngest child actually have a little bit more secure of, a, of an attachment style because the older siblings may have been acting as the care primary caregiver as well. See what I'm saying? So there, it, it's, it, it, this is a complex thing. It's not while we're kind of just, you know, giving a simple, here this is, and it's a tool, but it's very complex. So anyway, getting back to the parenting styles with the anxious one, um, so they're inconsistent, um, and and then the resulting adult characteristics would be they're just they're anxious and secure, insecure. There tends to be blaming. Um, there can be controlling because you remember that 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 anxious type of like when are my needs going to be met? They're going to be like hyper vigilant, you know, to try to get those needs met. And wow. um, you know, there's all there, this is kind of the the beginning of some narcissistic tendencies because there can be charming um, ways that a child can sort of get their needs met through that control or manipulation of being cute or charming, you know, that kind of thing. So there's some unpredictable nature in that. All right, next one is avoidant or sometimes called dismissive. And parents are just um, unavailable or rejecting of the child. So there's a lot of neglect children. So um, think of that generation with the Dr. Spock books where they're like, just let your kid try, cry it out and uh. empower them to grow up. You know, that would be that right there. So that whole generation who grew up under that nonsense is <laughs> an avoidant type of relationship style. So they, the people who grow up under that attachment style will avoid emotional connection. A lot of times they're the ones that have that um, very strong work ethic because they're going, I've got to, I got to do it for myself. Um, I can't rely on anybody else to do this for me. And uh, so they can be very critical and distant and intolerant of others. Um, last one is fearful avoidant, sometimes also called disorganized. And they were ignored. Um, the parents just simply don't see the child's needs. Maybe they're a drug addict. Uh, maybe this would be like um, people who grew up in maybe satanic families where they were used for a purpose, um, things like that. So parents, they're frightening to the children and they're abusive to the children. Um, and so the resulting attachment style would be very chaotic. The symptoms that they would see is very chaotic. Um, you would have a lot of like borderline personality disorder or BPD that comes out of that. Um, they're very insensitive people because it's all about, I just need to survive and I just need to get my needs met, but it's just at a deeper you know, level. Um, they can be very explosive, abusive, they're untrusting, but what, once again, they're still craving that security um, in their own relationships. They want that security 
but they want to be able to um, do it in a way that's counterfeit. So maybe it's through money or power or other ways. And so that's the issue. So a lot of times you find um, um, personality disorders that will result from that first several years of life. Now, realize that attachment doesn't just, it, while it's critical the first three years of life, it continues to develop even up to like age 11. And so depending on what events that happen, um, it can change. The other good news is that even if you as a listener were to identify that you have um, something other than a secure attachment style, you can intentionally move to change that. I'm living proof of that. I had an avoid or um, a, an anxious thing with my husband that I described earlier, and I had to understand what was the issue with that. So I'm gonna go back and talk about object permanence and how that played a role in that um, anxious attachment style. Um, unless you have any questions that you want to ask before no, I, I, I just I, I just want to say you know I mean um, the 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 this has been around for a while and mm -hmm. I, I I think it's so and you know one of the interesting things is that some of the way that people get damaged is actually because of ignorance you know the Bible says my people perish for lack of knowledge. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you, you know, like my wife and I, we went through a, a bit of a journey when, when Dylan was born, he didn't sleep. I mean, it was like, oh, I, I they told me an hour and a half, they, the, the, and then they have to wake up and feed. So I thought, you know, any, anyone can survive that for, I mean, plenty of people have done, I can do this. They didn't say 20 minutes. And so, I mean, it was, it was brutal. And, and so he's up every 20 minutes and crying. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I was like, the kid plans this torment because like, I would, I would change the diaper, but then he'd have to burp. Then I burp him and then he'd want to feed. So he'd feed and then he'd wet the diaper again. So I changed the diaper and then he'd have to burp and I'd burp him and then he'd wet his diaper again. And it's like, as soon as I'm done with that, I put him down for 20 minutes up and then he, start over. And it was just like, this is unreal. And so after several months, <laughs> we're like, do we just put him down and just let him cry until he figures out he needs to go to sleep? Like, you know, so we're looking at like different methods of how to handle the thing. And, you know, if all that was available to us at the time was Dr. Spock and said, oh no, you just let your kid just this and that. Then, then, I mean, what do you, we would probably have done that, but fortunately we came across um, other strategies and we actually did hire a sleep coach and they, they helped us to understand like, well, no, this, this is what you do. You put them down, you let them fuss for a few minutes, but then you go in, you comfort them, you hold them, you, you, this, and then you put them back down and then give them more minutes. And then you go in, you comfort them. And eventually they figure out that they can sleep and you're going to be there, but they start to sleep. And after a few nights of being up all night, like doing this exercise, uh, they start to sleep and he did, it worked, <laughs> but it's again, um, you know, 
there are better ways to work with, but, but, the but the temptation is real. Like, I, and I, you know, now that I've been a parent, like there are things that I look at differently. Like I, you see why people make bad decisions in moments of weakness and exhaustion. Um, but okay. So, so there's a whole lot of folks that grow up with issues uh, and, and sometimes their parents are really to blame. Sometimes their parents are just kind of to blame, right? So different spectrum there too. Let's talk about object permanence okay. and what that means. Okay, so how this relates to attachment is, let me give the listeners an example of what and how attachment is sort of practiced and, and nurtured. So. Um, you can have a a child um, that so let's say a mom will um, go to a park and she you know sits on the bench and puts a blanket down with some toys and has a toddler you know so let's say this is a an eighteen month old baby and so the little baby will crawl, you know, or, or kind of toddle away from mom and, you know, kind of looks around and is excited by, you know, trees and whatever there's there, but then suddenly realize, oh, I'm alone. And then toddler will turn and say, or look at mom and go, oh, okay, she's there. So what object permanence and how it, what it means, well, let me keep going with that example. So then that child is able, because mom is safe base, home base, then that child is anchoring their stability, their security to mom. Okay, so that's what the attachment begins. And that's where object permanence comes into play. And so now the child is, feels good again and is empowered to like, oh, I can go explore life again. So, you know, child will okay, I'm gonna drop to my knees. I'm gonna go explore this grass over here. And then after, you know, two minutes, they're like, where's mom? Uh, and they have to look and know, okay, she's there, we're good. So what object permanence is, is to know that people and things exist even when you can't see them. It's the ability to hold someone internally and the knowledge that you are not alone in the world, okay? So when anxious attachment or any anything other than a secure attachment is what's developing in a child their ability to hold meaning let me say it this way there at some point in the child's development there needs to be a transition away from mom is home base and is secure to i am okay inside of me and i know that mom is there and that i'm not alone and she loves me. You, the, the perfect example is always going to be dropping kids off in the kindergarten or daycare for the first time. And there's going to be different range of children that react different ways. You're going to have ones that really adapt very quickly and, you know, make friends and they're, you know, attaching to the, the teacher there. And then there's other ones that are just having a meltdown in the corner and everybody's like, oh, what's wrong with Johnny? You know, that kind of thing. So you can tell those different attachment styles in that type of an example. For me, I didn't learn object permanence. So for me, because my parents would leave, that longing of needing security and stability, my parents would just go away. 
obviously I didn't have the language to tell them, Hey, when you go away, that's like destroying me, you know? But as I got older, I, I realized I'm being very clingy or I felt like I was too much in relationships and I didn't want to be that way. And, um, and so, because I couldn't hold, um, in myself that I was a secure person and that I was anchored in my identity in Christ, even though I was already a Christian, um, it, it just, I had to learn how to, to create that kind of safe place within me, kind of like hotel Jesus, or, you know, kind of a thing like that, where we have like a safe place inside of us that we can kind of go, okay, I'm safe. I'm okay. And so there's that, there's that transition that happens from in infanthood or childhood to when we get older. And for me, I was uh, mid twenties before I started realizing you know, I was 22 and I got married and this happened shortly after that. So it was probably mid twenties before I really realized this is what this is. So like I said, I was texting Dave, you know, all throughout the day and, and things like that. When, you know, like, when are you coming home? Cause I was just so anxious about, you know, being alone because I had transitioned my stability and security to him instead of keeping that within me. So, um, once I realized there was object permanence was, was what I was needing, then I could grow up. I, I was able to heal that, um, to kind of break that soul tie that was ungodly there and convert that or transition that to God. And that's why, um, um, you know, like first John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us. Hebrews 13, 5 and Deuteronomy 30, uh, 31, 6, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, John 14, 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So it was scriptures like that that really stood out to me that I was like, okay, Dave is a fallible human. As much as I love him, I need something that's going to be perfect, perfected. And you know what I mean is that I can anchor to in my identity. And so when I was able to do that, it allowed me to grow up. And all these little girl parts that, you know, had been created when my parents left, I was able to get ministry for them and grow them up and, and realize that, okay, I'm safe within myself. And now, like that toddler, I can now go out and explore and have an expanded worldview because somebody who does not have object permanence, what they end up doing is they become fearful of people and fearful of places. And what they do is they create like a home base, hmm. which can be a place or maybe it's a person in that home. And then they create a radius of safety around that. And they will not go further out than what that radius will allow because that's the safe zone. Maybe that's going to the grocery store. And so they may have like a routine that they do and that's as far as you can go out. Um, but when you develop object permanence that allows that radius to be literally eventually the whole world, you can go anywhere and be safe. So now let me just say, so, so the, it's impossible to hear this kind of content, right? People not start asking questions, wait a minute. So. For the person that's sitting there and saying, I am stuck in my routine. Mm -hmm. I'm 45 years old. Go to work, go to the grocery store, I go home. I don't even take trips. I don't even take vacations because that's outside of my box. I'm just really locked in. 
could that be connected to an attachment style, like actual lifestyles and the uh, patterns that people get set in? What do you think? Yes, I think it, I think that that's very possible because, um, because what is missing is risking. And when you have object permanence, you're able to risk, meaning I can go and be a trailblazer and, and go someplace and not be afraid because I know the Lord's going to hold me in his hand, you know, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the stronger that identity is the, the, the more able you are to be able to have an expanded worldview. And that is, I'm excited to go meet people you know, and see what this is all about, or what this place is, or, you know, bring my light into that dark plate, whatever that looks like. That's how we rule and subdue the earth is because we're able to have that object permanence. See that? Look at that. Mm-hmm. So um, let's advance the conversation a little bit, Diane. Okay. All right. So object permanence. So that was what I had to figure out. And then um, the other type of developmental issue. Okay. So let me see, let me go back to how does, how does a child develop that? So object permanence, um, a really great way to uh, practice that with your children is the game of peekaboo. And so that's why that's a big thing with kids is because that's teaching them, okay, you can't see me, you know, but when I go, who, and they, and they always go like, they're so surprised because they have not developed object permanence, but the older they get, they like, if you went up to Christian and did that to Christian, your wife, she'd be like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, because it's, you know, it's, it's a logical thing that we develop as we age, but with Dylan, he may still be in that, like, daddy, where'd you go? You know, and you've seen probably those YouTube videos where people do that with, they hold up the sheet and they disappear and their dog is like, what happened? Because they don't have that, you know, it's kind of funny thing, but, um, And so that is stressing to children, you know, is that, and so you don't want to hide away and be hidden for a long period of time. You want to like open up the windows of the peekaboo so that they can be relieved again. And, but it develops that slowly over time of, okay, I, that they understand that even if they can't see something that it's still there. So um, what does that look like? Um, if you hide a toy under a blanket, when it's a really young child, they may just be like, they'll give up on the toy because it's just like, oh, it's gone. I'm like, I'll move on to this other toy. And then if you like pull it out from under the blanket and they'll be like, oh, because they didn't know that you put it in the blank under the blanket, but you get an older child and you do that, they're going to be like whining or because they know that you can give it back to them. So that's that's kind of how object permanence gets developed in children. So make that, you know, so that people understand that. Then there's object constancy. So now we fast forward to adulthood. Mm-hmm. So object constancy is the, the ability to believe that a relationship is stable and intact despite the presence of setbacks, conflict, or disagreements. Um, so when you have, and, and remember that attachment and these kinds of 
things that I'm talking about, these are not just romantic relationships or mom and dad. This is every kind of relationship that there is. So it can be coworkers. It can be, um, you know, any kind of relationship. So if you think about object constancy now, so an example would be of um, a husband and wife fight and husband storms off and, and then the woman goes into despair, my marriage is over. And he's going, what is up? Like, you know, we had an argument because I left the milk out and I, or you left the milk out and I was upset about that because I didn't get my cereal this morning or what, you know, it's some silly thing, but there's always this, it, it, what it does is it, there's a despairing and there's a black and white thinking that occurs. And you see this a lot in codependent dysfunctional families, um, trauma-based relationships and relating styles, because there's that black and white thinking. Um, and, and so that black and white thinking, what I mean by that is it's all or nothing. I'm either all good with my husband or my friend or my mom or dad, or they're dead to me, you know, or I'm dead to them. And so there's always this extreme, you know, spectrum of, of that's the black and white thinking. So anyway, does that kind of help? Um, so all of that is so good. And here's the thing, right? Um, this is where we start to get, I think, a lot of questions answered because one of the things that people are, as a rule, I mean, in this country is unhappy. Mm -hmm. And they're unhappy in their relationships. And they're unhappy because they don't feel like they're getting their needs met. They're unhappy because they don't feel fulfilled. They're unhappy because they don't feel satisfied. We live in a, a culture where there's a lot of, I think, externalization. And um, also, it's all about me, right? That's what we get from our media. That's what we get from our thing. It's, it's just, it's, it's so um, it really caters well to the uh, perspective that, you know, you just have to find the right person and then everything should work when really sometimes what we have to find is Jesus. <laughs> we have to find some healing. We have to find some deliverance because at the center of every problem, uh, 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 or I should say set of problems that a person has is themselves, right? right? So if you have a repeating problem, sometimes you have to say, wait a minute, I've been in 45 different dating relationships over the past 10 years and none of them have worked out. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just need to find the right person is not pro the, the right conclusion. Maybe it's, you know, and a, a, a broken way of connecting with people. And, and so, wow. Right. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, yep. Absolutely. So um, when, in, in, like I said, in, this is a great tool because even if somebody doesn't have memories, they can be using, a coach can be using it, how they are relating, um, how their client is relating to in their, all of the different kinds of relationships that they have. And, and even if they don't have memories of their childhood, or if somebody is going, hmm, was I sexually abused? Even those kinds of questions is an indicator that most likely, yes. And so we can use attachment as a tool to be able to say, okay, depending on how um, 
whatever your attachment styles, that's going to kind of determine the level of, of abuse that happened, at least in that first, you know, very formative years. So, um, you know, we, we realize biblically that we are not created to be alone, you know, and so when we, we have these deep needs of, of being loved and to be known and to know others. And so, um, you know, most of our conflicts and attempts to be loved are problems with attachment. And so when we can identify what our attachment style is, it gives us, um, you know, kind of like, I've named it, you know, like, and now I want to improve this because like you said, there may be the pattern of 45 relationships that have been broken. And so this is a way um, that gives people, if, if they don't know anything else, they have no memories of anything else, this at least gives them something to cling on to, to say, okay, Lord, open the door. I'm starting to see that this relating is, and I know that I'm supposed to be relating not only to you, but, but to others, because we're called to love. So um, anyway, I think the, the first thing that we really need to be doing is, is focusing on identity and, you know, it's like Arthur, Arthur Burke talks about in, um, I think it's this fractal of two where, you know, mother and child, that nurturing that happens and there's a, it's, it, it's, it's formative to the giver portion of our spirit. And so work with a coach about starting with your giver and building identity in Christ. And that's that, you know, we love him because he first loved us, because if you can't receive that love because you're mm -hmm. avoidant. Um, then that is going to be a wall that you, that's an impasse that you've got to work through. It doesn't mean that Jesus can't reach down and, and you're, let me say it this way. You're never too broken. There's always a path of return to him always. And so um, that's the encouraging side of this is that there is a way to work through this. This, like I said, it's just a tool to be able to identify where you're at and what has happened and that may open the door for you to be able to start having memories come up and to be able to work on your spirit and get that activated and get receiving from heaven so that you're able to, your spirit is able to bring things down to your body and soul, you know, to be able to allow you to do the work that you need to do. So that's so good. And I, and I love this now because we're kind of transitioning the conversation into a, a, a solution set where, you know, all right we're talking about working with the human spirit as part of the solution set. You know, one of the things that happens when you have a conversation on attachment disorder or not, or I should say different attachment styles, mm -hmm. say that, right. That conversation is usually happening independently of a, uh, a understanding of parts and soul fragmentation. And so most people assume a solidarity of of the soul when they think about how psychological problems play out and I, I think well we have a very different perspective right there's a lot of brokenness in the soul and that does lead so 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 what I'm asking I think next is I mean let, let's let's explore what some of these attachment styles look like from a a parts perspective like and and maybe pick an example that you've actually run into where it's like okay you know, we have person A that has a disorganized attachment style and mm -hmm. well, they have some parts, but what kind of parts do they have? What are the condition that they're, they're parts in and how is that holding them 
in um i i, I guess a a uh non-relating style a right? non-relating style yeah. yeah let's talk about it okay so you would have you know just very quickly protector parts that are like you are not going to risk you're not going to tell the secrets um you're they're going to be very shut down and fearful of anybody and and so i think the bottom line is is when you have a disorganized um attachment style you're gonna have fear and lack of trust and so for somebody who's coming to a coach um or if a listener is going i'm trying to identify with that within me there if you have those two things fear and lack of trust of just generally speaking people around you then it's then obviously that is a template that gets overlaid onto god just it's going to happen, you know? And so if there is fear and lack of trust, then how do you receive? So there's, there's got to be a, a reparation of the receiving or the giver portion of our spirit that has to happen there. But getting back to the part, you're going to have protector parts. You may have um, parts that um, have been abused. Maybe there's demonic attachments to those parts. Um, it depends on what you know the context of their upbringing was let's say it's a, a satanic family that you know subjected them to rituals like all the time and i've had clients that were like that that you know very complex systems within them and just literally like the like the presenter was a little girl wasn't even the adult body at all and i had to make you know i had to find that person within her you know kind of thing and and so there's um, there's going to be, I mean, it's, it just depends on the context of the person's upbringing, what they've gone through, but basically you're going to have, um, parts that are very fearful and untrusting. And when they try, when the person or presenter tries to engage with the coach, it's going to be hard for the coach to to develop a rapport with the client for some period of time. And sometimes the coach just has to sit and develop that trust so that they're, remember that state, safety and security, the stability, uh, you've got to develop that rapport so that the person can start developing trust with the coach so that you can even get going. So there's some finessing that needs to happen and things like that. And so, you know, it just takes time. So it's not like something you, they can come in in one or two sessions, be like, okay, I'm fixed. You know, it doesn't work that way. You know, the more um, away from secure attachment a person becomes and they're relating, the longer it's going to be, I'm just saying, it's the longer it's going to be in a process to heal that, but it can still be done. So parts, um, and different parts can have different attachment styles too. That's the other thing that we need to consider is that you can have, you know, very agreeable parts that love people and then other, you know, very cult loyal parts as well. So the attachment style inside somebody's system can be very, I'll say disorganized as well, because there can be more than one. So and I, that, I, that's I a think, whole nother level of complexity. But anyway. No, but it's, I think it's a good level of complexity to talk about because this yeah. is, this is really, I think, getting to the root of some really deep places of confusion because 
you have folks all over the place that, that I mean, okay, so they have a spouse and the, you know, there are seasons where things seem to just go so well and everyone seems to be relating, but then other seasons will trigger different stuff to the surface and it changes the way that folks relate. And it can be hard to understand why there was, you know, so much confidence and, you know, trust in this. And then it's just like one thing happens, it might be external. And suddenly now, it was a whole different way of relating because of this new season that's opened up. Different things are coming to the surface. It's like, am I even married to the same person? Or am I even friends with the same person? And the answer is yes and no. Yeah. The answer is yes, it's the same body. But depending on what parts are at or near the surface, the attachment style can change. Yep. And th that explains a lot of why, like, really great friendships have gone upside down and marriages that seemed to be okay went uh, sideways and, and people didn't know what to do, you know, when certain things, I mean, and, and that can include just the introduction of say, you know, everything was good until the brother moved across the street. And now the parts that were the sibling parts are up and but they're also now married with the married parts. And, and, and so now the sibling and the married parts are both dealing with the spouse, but the sibling parts don't relate like an adult, right? This is the stuff. Right. And so, and so oh, talk to me. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, you think of it this way, like to give the listeners a picture of that. It's like, there's a timeline that is not, there's nothing linear about that experience, what you just described. It's like a scrambled noodly mess, you know, because you have parts of every age within the system. And depending on the events that happen out in front of them, then that is going to be triggering some, some part to come up, whether that's a three-year-old or a 38-year-old or, you know, whatever. And so, um, that's the, and, and they all have different experiences because how I view it is that part is stuck in that time and they stop aging emotionally. And so because of that, they're in that relating style that they were at that time, even if the presenter has moved forward, right? So that's why you get all of these weird differences in attachment and like why does my wife just suddenly like as soon as I threaten her whatever you know her intelligence she just resorts to this three-year-old like why is this happening <laughs> you know so that explains for people why that can be you know why people just can be so like I thought I knew this person but I don't so anyway does that help so so now now I I know, and we're kind of going, well, so we're going to come back to where you were driving. Um, but what I, I want to ask, you know, when, when folks come to you mm -hmm. and they say, hey, help, mm -hmm. I have a great friend, but our relationship went completely sideways. They used to relate to me like this. Now they relate to me like that. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Mm -hmm. So it. Okay, so I'm assuming that this person has DID that's coming to me. And so I would ask, was there an event? Um, 
if I know the person's history, then I would know probably their relating style and how much we've already done. But if it's just somebody, you know, a new client, and I know nothing about their history, then I would start asking about going, using the tool of the attachment to say, okay, what was your family of origin like? You know, start giving me a little history and background of, of how we can see the pattern of your relating. And that may explain why this relationship went south. And if there's, you know, a, a, um, an anxious type of relating style, then um, you can you can start saying, okay, you need to create boundaries with that person. Um, or maybe you you need to have boundaries because you're you're asking too much, you know. And so you can start implementing solutions for them. Um, and if it's a part, you know, that's just practical stuff. If there's a part with them that is needing um, to be, you know, you go back and say, okay, is there a memory of something that's similar that happened? You know, like what is the trigger for that person? And if there's a trauma associated and there's a part that's stuck in something that says, you know, um, this person challenges me and makes me feel dumb. Okay. And the, and the, chronic trauma that this client had was dad used to make them feel dumb all the time. And so they become aggressive, let's say. And, and so this relationship, this person was provoked. They, and so they got aggressive and it scared the friend away. And they're like, who are you? You know? And so we go back to look at what's the trauma trigger in that we see a series of events that happen and we go, okay, now we minister to these parts and allow them to, you know, either be fired or put them in a pocket realm, minister them, whatever they need. And then, you know, we can, you can see huge leaps in people's health and relating styles because you're addressing um, the parts that were childlike or childish, I should say. <laughs> That's so, so good. That's so good. And, and, you know, this is one of the, the big breakthroughs, right? With, with understanding parts, I think that it allows us to solve so many problems more effectively, more effectively, because uh, what, what I found is before parts are understood and you're just dealing with what we call presenters, which is the soul consciousness at the front, right? Um, you tell people do better. <laughs> and so then they try and, 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 and genuine people will genuinely try, but it feels like they're fighting themselves or what's, you know, let's just put some language on it, right? What's in their heart to do because they say, well, this is the right thing. This is the right way to relate. And it feels like a self-betrayal because all these other folks on the inside that are not getting a voice want one and are active in response to stress, in response to the way that people are treating them and so, and so forth. And so, mm -hmm. and, and, and are being triggered by pain that goes way back. And, and if we don't understand, person says, we'll just do better. You end up with a person that white knuckles their way through every relationship. And, and can I tell you, you know, white knuckling your way through marriage is not ideal, friend. It's exhausting, um, you know? <laughs> It is, it is exhausting. And at the end of the day, the easiest way to white knuckle your way through marriage is to have very few things on which two people relate and to have a whole lot of things, which, uh, you know, 
that's the decompress. And, and there's a better way when, when you actually deal with the source points of the pain. Wow. What a difference that right. Yes, exactly. So what I, I've done a lot of marriage counseling over the years for people because of this very thing. Cause I know how helpful it was for, for me and my marriage. And so one of the things is to identify what your needs are. And sometimes that because of these relating styles and parts and all of this that make us fearful, we don't trust. And because we've been autonomous or self-sufficient in those relating styles, we, we tend to just forget to ask for help because, because of the autonomy and self-sufficiency. And so first thing that, that, that needs to be looked at in the, in that relationship is how they communicate. And when you can look at and, and sit down, I remember when Dave and I, we went to a, um, uh, what do you call it? like a marriage retreat kind of thing? We had to go a couple hours north, and we went to this bed and breakfast. and And one of our assignments was to go out for dinner that night and and just and make a list of our needs. Daniel, I'm telling you, that was the most awkward conversation of my entire life. Wow. And you know, we're we were in our 30s at this point, you know, and so we're going, why is this so hard? You know, and we just looked at each other, and it's like, I love you, and he's like, and I love you. Okay, so divorce is off the table, right? Yes. Okay, now we need to figure out what are we what do we need from each other? And so that communication thing starts happening and you know parts do come up and and because remember I was talking about those longings that I had as a kid, those there's there's need, there's losses, there's longings first and then losses and then we set up pretenses. That's the masks that we all all wear and things like that. And then we get into the autonomy and we've got to come out of that somehow. So communication in, in discussing our needs, because we've lived in self-sufficiency for so long, we, we, we tend to just go, well, I just kind of take it as, I, as the day comes and I don't really know what I need. So when you ask somebody who's SRA or DID and you say, what are your needs? They just go, uh, uh, I don't know. And so we have to start establishing what is it that you need every single day? Is it physical touch? You know, is it whatever it is? And, and to understand that our needs are not weaknesses, they're hardwired into us. And so when we can start, you know, going down that path, then there's a healing process that comes out and our parts can feel safe because our spouse or our best friend or whatever can meet our needs and there's nothing needed or asked for in return. That's the mutual interdependence that we're going for. But that takes trust and a fearlessness and risking relationship. And I think that's what I really want to sell today here is for people to risk relationship. Look at how you are attaching and, and start saying, why not me? Why can't I have this? Why not dream big, you know, and how can I expand, you know, my worldview and, and purview of things and, you know, all of that good stuff, you know, why not me? And so that's, that's what I really want to drive home. in all of this is that your needs are not weaknesses and that you're never too far gone. 
and you know the lord will meet you in all of these things and and he wants to receive you just like the prodigal son the father reaches out and embraces that's that's grace that god gives us you know so there's all of that you know that embracing grace that no matter how much we run and try to do things on our own way that we can pivot away from that and come back and we will be embraced with his grace. So anyway, there's that. Anything else? Oh, that's so good. That's so good. You know, um, yeah, there's a lot of hope folks. And, and, and I, did, I did have one last question, you know, it's just, you know, from your perspective and uh, you know, maybe some of the different personalities that have crossed your path over the time, I, which of these personality attachment styles if you found most closely associates with narcissistic behavior or narcissist and and have you ever met and this is just you know a question that i'm going to ask you have you ever met a, a narcissist that actually processed as a secure attachment style in pretense I think that that they, I think there's posers that can absolutely do that. And where I have, I, have I seen that? In churches, unfortunately. And so, yes, I think that there's, they know inside of themselves that it's not true and that it's a pretense, but everybody fawns at their feet and that kind of stuff they're a very charming type of personality and um and they fake it you know and but understand that inside of them is a great deep level of fear because they've never had security or stability in their lives and they're trying to create a construct around them that serves that need for them and it's a counterfeit measure Absolutely. So when that whole structure falls down around their ears, they're going to be left that little boy or little girl inside of them is just going to be a, a total mess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so there's definitely parts that play into that and that kind of thing. But I would say, you know, where they would most likely be is um, avoidant type attachment styles to begin with and then they certain they they learn it's like somebody who um they start looking at people like they're marks meaning that they they can be played and you know think of the circus kind of thing and so you've got um you've got a, a construct of a personality who's very mm, you know like sociopathic kind of thing or at least well anyway so there's so it's a predatory behavior. And so they start looking at people like, you know, I can use you. And they're looking for people who are needy and they, you know, want to develop that. So that person comes across as, I'll be your hero, you know, and um, and they are for a while until mistakes, people start seeing their mistakes. It's exhausting for them to hold up the, the structure of lies around them. And eventually it will fall. And when it does that, it's going to be destructive. Um, will people 
when when they're going through those kinds of things, will people learn? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. They just rebuild the whole thing again. So, you know, they'll just keep going around that mountain until, you know, God brings them to the end of themselves. So I just kind of, when I find people like that, yeah, I've run into many things like that before. Mm. And when I do that, I just go, okay, I, I cut ties with that situation and say, Lord, I release them to you. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would have a mighty encounter with that person and bring them to their knees. You know, it's the best you can do. Thank you for that. Yeah, you know, this is this is a really, I think, um, helpful conversation, which is why we're having it, Diane, you know, I, and, and I know you had taken several people through this conversation who were all very much helped and making a lot of connect. This is a place where we can make connections. This is a place where we can like get some answers. And 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 by the way, friends, if you're listening to this, and you're like, I need some help. Check out coach.bridemovement.com, you know, uh, it's. We've got a lot of really good people there and uh, they can help you work through some of the attachment styles your parts may have that are not ideal. Mm -hmm. uh, there is healing and deliverance in the name of Jesus. So uh, did you have any final thoughts on the subject, Diane? Mm, no, I think I've, I've, no, I think I've addressed everything. Just, I wanted to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this because like I said in the beginning, this is near and dear to my heart and I think it's an, it's an important tool that people understand and, and can utilize in their journey. So I just want to bless everybody in their healing journey as well. And thanks again for having me here today. Folks, that's the word. Until next time, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Visit me at dandevall.com where you'll discover merch, books, and the opportunity to engage in our private social network. Join the tribe by subscribing to our email list and supporting this podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.